So we had this, uh, this kind of running drama in my house um, about Esther's toolbox. Um, she, uh, she loves to do things around the house, to be handy. To, uh, and so like five different times for gift-giving things, I've bought, I bought her a toolbox or a tool bag. Put all the basic tools in it. This is yours. You can, you know, you can now do all the little things you want. And she loves it. She gets super excited. I've got my own hammer, my own little screw gun. My, I got everything. She's super excited. And then I do projects around the house. And rather than go out to my truck and get all my stuff, I go to Esther's toolbox. And I grab something, and I use it, and I don't put it back. And within a few months, Esther's toolbox is empty. And she just loses her mind when she goes to her toolbox and can't find her tools I'm like, oh, I needed that at work, so I took it, and yada, yada, yada. And so we've gone, we've gone over this all the time. But, but there's also, like, a fun little benefit for me is that she's, like, she has a lot of ingenuity. So I'll go in there, and she's, like, putting something together with a butter knife. Anybody ever done the butter knife screwdriver thing? Yeah, all of us. And I get to be the one to go, here, let me get you a screwdriver. And I go out to my truck, and I bring her a screwdriver, you know, right tool at the right time, you know. But, of course, she always complains, about, I had a screwdriver, but somebody stole it, you know. But, um... But yeah, tools are important, and having the right tool um, is important um, as well. Having the answer to the to the problems is a big deal, which we're going to talk about today. Um, last week we had a major transition in the Book of Romans, kind of laying our our uh, our own salvation, um, kind of feeling secure in our own salvation by the end of chapter eight, where we get to finally rest in the in the grace of God uh, and say. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul kind of walked us through that whole process for eight chapters. Started with our own sinfulness, um, God's gift to us to make us right with Himself, our own struggle with our sins that end in this kind of realization that salvation is more than just cleaning ourselves up and, and, and somehow completely overcoming sin in the fleshly life, um, so that we can finally feel worthy. It's, uh, it's being filled with the Holy Spirit and, and born again. Um, by the Holy Spirit and, and with this huge conclu- conclusion that we can't be separated from God. It's a, it's a kind of a beautiful progression from chapters 1 to 8. And chapters 8 feels like a conclusion, like nothing can separate us, like it's the end of the story. And I love the fact that the story doesn't end there, that there's more book, because it means that, that the gospel is about more than just us getting saved and going to heaven. There's more to do. Um, so having established all that and resting in that security, we completely change focus as we get into chapter 9, and everything turns corporate. He's now talking about groups of people. He's going to talk about the, the, the weird phenomenon of the people of God being Israel. And, and we're going to get into next week about him grafting in a new people. And, and he's talking about these groups of people suddenly, and not just the individual and individual salvation, but this understanding of, of what it means to be part of a people and what it means to be part of a group. Um, we talked about last week about how, for us, that means... Um, our status has now changed. Uh, rather than being um, uh, the, the, the Gentiles, it used to be just two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, it's now the church. There's now a new group of people, the church. Um, and, and that comes with responsibility that we, um, and, and benefits. And so we commit to that new identity of being church. Um, we're not just a made, made to worship and follow God alone. We're made for, for people. And I believe uh, we simply cannot experience God, hear from God, understand God's word, join God's mission alone. It was never intended that way. There's just no biblical evidence of, the reality, of that reality. In fact, the bulk of the scripture speaks otherwise, that there's something powerful and necessary about finding our people. 
and owning that we are um, church. My clicker's acting funny. I don't know what's happening. Don't you love technology? Um, now, for anyone um, who remembered, you guys remember clicks in school? Like groups and clicks, you know, maybe you were a jock or, or a nerd or one of the cool kids or a troublemaker or one of the mean girls. That was me. I was one of the mean girls. Um, the, the very first thing you learn when you become part of a group or a clique is how to identify those who are not part of the group or clique, right? Like it's, it's super important um, when you, uh, when it's like essential to the survival of the clique that you identify people who are outside and keep them outside. That's what ensures um, your clique. Uh, and as we read this morning, that, re- that reality exists um, in our journey through the gospel as well, just a bit. We talked last week about how the entire biblical narrative from the Old Testament up to basically the end of the Gospels, there's only two types of people. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And, and though there's um, more distinctions do exist, everybody could fall into one or two of those categories, one of those two categories. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, period. Well, chapter 9, Paul identifies a third group. Um, this could get wonky. Hey, can you pull that... Uh, that dongle out of the front of the computer and run it up here? I think there's one in the front of that computer. Um, for anyone who, uh, nope, went too far. Man. Try switching up here. Always have a backup, right? Maybe, we're hoping. So Paul in chapter 9 identifies a third group. He's got the Jews, the Gentiles, and he says this, And among those of us whom he selected, both from the Jews and the Gentiles, with that one statement he says, those whom he, God, selected. Um, And with that one statement he identifies the church. He identifies a new group of people. And it's made up of Jews and Gentiles, but it's different than both. Paul identifies the church, and just like that, um, every group that has ever existed, like every group that's ever existed, there's the ins and the outs. There's the those who are part of the church and those who are not part of the church. Those who believe and those who not. Um, and uh, and and uh, and Paul talks about that in this a little bit in this opening statement. So let's let's dive into how he starts this. It says, "Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it's misdirected zeal." For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which uh, the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Now first, we have to lay out what exactly is happening here um, in its historical context so we don't lose track of what's happening in Paul's day. But I'd also like to maybe explore how this passage might be playing out in our day, uh, in, a, in, in our contemporary context. Paul uh, opens with this fascinating statement that he is uniquely qualified to make. He says, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it's misdirected zeal. Paul was a Pharisee. Um, Pharisees were the strictest of the Jewish sects, at least when it came to obeying the Jewish law in every possible detail. Um, actually, the Pharisees were the closest to what we might call conservatives today. Um, when the when uh, when the Greeks conquered the Medo Persians and kind of that made them kind of take control over Israel, um, they employed one of their 
best programs for assimilating new cultures. They did it everywhere they conquered. They built new and safer roads. They, uh, they, uh, uh, and they did it in Israel, new safe roads in and out of Israel. Uh, incidentally, they also made it easier to collect taxes, which is one of the reasons they did that, because it allowed them to come in and out collect taxes. But they built uh, gymnasiums. In Israel, they built a gymnasium, kind of a Greek-style gymnasium. They introduced Greek art and theater and competition. Um, and this, they brought in new and safer technologies for moving water and all kinds of things. Um, the Greeks were, were really good at coming into a new culture and not necessarily subjugating them with a hard fist, but introducing all these great and wonderful Greek um, things into the culture. And it, and it brought the benefits of Greek life to the culture. And so the culture generally loved it and went along with it. Um, and it was, a, it was a great way to assimilate new, uh, new cultures um, and make them enjoy Greek rule, basically. Well, when Greece did this in Israel, most of Israel, like everybody else, enjoyed the new advancements. Um, the Pharisees, though, recognized the risk that with all of this new Greek stuff came Greek worship, came Greek um, influence and Greek thinking. And so the Pharisees kind of said, no, we are Israel. We have to be Israel. And the easiest way to maintain our Jewish identity is focus on the Torah. We focus on the way Jews do things. And they, they doubled down on, on living Jewishly. Um, and, and they did that by resisting the push of the culture, resisting the, the, the new influences and the, and the new progress. Um, and, and just for reference, politically, the Sadducees were on the other side. The Sadducees believed in progress. They believed progress was good for Israel. Um, they, they also, incidentally, because they were kind of the ruling class, the temple, the people who ruled the temple, Greek uh, influence, the, the Greeks were very good at letting those people have power. And so there was a big power thing for the Sadducees as well. The Greeks kind of supported them being the ruling class. And so they welcomed in all the progress. They welcomed in um, all that. So the main distinction between the Pharisees and Sadducees in that day was kind of the, the age-old disagreement between conservatives wanting to conserve the old ways and the progressives wanting to move on to new ways. We're pretty familiar with this pressure. Most of the theological questions that, that these people posed to Jesus weren't challenges to Jesus. They weren't really interested in what Jesus thought. These were questions, almost all of them, were questions that the Pharisees and Sadducees had been asking each other for a long time. So they weren't actually asking the Jesus to find his opinion. They were asking him to find out whose side he was on. They both wanted to co-opt him um, and his miracles and his popularity to their team. So they would ask him these questions that, that, that had been asked a thousand times, hoping they would say, you know, I believe this. They could say, aha, he's one of us. Um, and he had, a, he had this magical way of not choosing either side. They'd come to him, How, what do you say about this situation? He was like, well, let me tell you a story. Like in, oh, would you just pick a team? You know, they would, they would uh, get frustrated with him. But both sides really wanted to co-opt his popularity, um, and, and he wouldn't go that way. Um, but they were both committed to, to, to God in their own way. And the weirdest thing to remember is in that season, they missed Jesus because they were so committed to God. Like, can you imagine a scenario where you're in the Scriptures you know, studying out what it's going to be like when Messiah comes and you hear a crowd go by and you go outside and you're like, would you guys keep it down? I'm looking for the Messiah, you know, as he walks down the street past your, your place. But they really felt like Jesus was a threat to their relationship with the Father. It wasn't that they were, you know, just clinging to power. Um, they were solely devoted to God and they felt like Jesus was a threat to that. And Paul was actually one of these people. He was a Pharisee. Um, and so he kind of vouches for these people in this passage. 
he states that his people have a, a really intense zeal for God. Um, they just got the details wrong. Um, and this is an important distinction because we can have this tendency to assume that the Jews that missed Jesus missed him because they didn't like him or, or because they felt threatened by his teaching or popularity. And it can be easy to assume that that, that means they didn't serve God or they despised um, God completely and they didn't desire to please God. In other words, we can assume that, that, that they were in, in it for the power and the clout, and maybe the money. And when the true good showed up, they chose evil instead. Like that, they, that, that to them it was a choice between good and evil and they chose evil. But Paul sits in this weird place of no doubt being able to remember what it was like to be a Pharisee. And even more, you know, a Pharisee who hunted Christians, like a zealous Pharisee. And he would have no doubt known the hours that he spent praying. He would have surely remembered how much time he invested in studying Scripture, pouring over them again and again to make sure he wasn't offending God in some way. He would probably remember that tickle in his heart the first time he heard about Jesus and, and the curiosity of, of wondering what was the deal with this odd rabbi. And of course, he would probably went to the scripture and studied it out to make sure, you know, that, that this crazy preacher from Galilee wasn't the Messiah. He would have almost certainly, you know, triggered bouts of worship and gratitude that God had chosen him to not only be a Jew, but an educated Pharisee. Who can, sort, who can sort out all this, this confusing mess and not be taken in by this crazy man in the wilderness. And we know from his own writings that, that he remembered well what it felt like to pour all of that confidence and passion for God and God's Word into a vendetta against the followers of Jesus because they were threatening to demean the temple and draw people away from the only God worthy of worship. So trying to convince Paul that, Paul that the Pharisees or the Jews in general, for that matter, only missed Jesus because they didn't love God or were too committed to themselves or would have been a hard sell because he remembered what that was like. He was like, dude, these people love God. These people are crazy about God. The problem's not that they're bad people. It's that they missed it. They, 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 didn't, they misunderstood how this works. Paul's basically saying, I know they love God. I remember being one of them. And my whole life was about God. I wanted nothing more in the world than to please God. And in my experience, most serious Jews were the same way. Really, really zealous for God. Just wrong about how to actually get to the God that they love. Now, with that statement, Paul doubles back and he, and he repeats the same gospel message he's been receiving, saying through the entire book. Declaring the, uh, that the law never made anyone right with God. And that only by believing in Jesus can we be made righteous. And this is really kind of a, a, a neat passage because the message has this beautiful continuity through chapters 1 through 8, the personal message between you and God, me and God. And now that we've changed perspective, it, it's about the message that those who are outside of salvation also need to hear. The message is no different. So the same message, but now it's a message that we share, not just a message we receive. The perspective has changed. And we'll dig into that in a bit, but I'd like to look at how these first few verses look in our modern context. Because I think, it, I think there's a, a neat connection. Paul seems committed um, to, his, to his readers understanding that the problem is not that the Jews wanted evil. Or, or wanted to rebel against God in any way. On the contrary, they were zealous for God. I think this can actually be helpful today because believe it or not, um, it could be argued 
that many, if not most, you know, atheists or God deniers um, are no different. See, we have this natural tendency to divide the world into saved and unsaved. And there's some validity to that. The reality that some people follow Jesus and other people don't is valid. But here's the deal. We very naturally assume, especially in a democracy where everything's competitive, that the other side is the enemy and evil. We assume that those who don't follow Jesus, who despise organized religion, or who would attack and condemn the church, are automatically aligned with Satan. And more than anything, want to undermine anything good and righteous and desire that everything be sinful and debaucherous. And this is an easy position to hold as long as you don't actually meet and become friends with any of them. Because if you actually get to know anyone normal who doesn't believe in Jesus or who has totally different political views than you or maybe very different theological views than you or maybe even those who propose things that really, really offend you. If you actually get to know those people, you're likely to find one of two things. One, they've been really hurt by the church or someone in the church. That's very, very common. That, that what they're showing you is their pain. What they're showing you in a lot of their stances is they're hurt. Or two, and I think this passage can help us with this, you'll find that these people are really, really zealous about doing good and making the world better. They're just mistaken on how you can actually do that. Very few of them are evil. I'm not saying there's not some of those, but very few of them are evil. Most of them are just mistaken. They really want to do good. They really think what they're doing is good. I hear this all the time. Someone will tell me about a, a, a really good friend or a coworker, um, and they'll tell me how great the person is, how much they like them, and how the, this, this person is not a Christian, but they have a really good heart. And, and you can almost see in the way they talk about them that they don't know what to do with that tension. They don't know what to do with the fact that this is a really good person. I mean, they're not a Christian, but man, you believe me, they're really, they're really neat. Um, they have a really good heart. It's almost like you want to make them a Christian because they're, they're good people. And I think most of the other side are that way. And that's basically exactly what Paul's talking about when he's talking about the Jews here. He's like, the problem isn't that they're evil. The problem is that they're stupid. <laughs> Bonhoeffer had this great theory, and it, it's terrified me ever since I read it, especially during the pandemic. This is super terrifying during the pandemic. He claimed that evil, real evil, is both easy to identify and easy to combat. We generally know when we face true evil, and we have very little compunction about standing up to it. What is true evil? He said what's far more complicated is stupidity. Because stupidity can be co-opted by evil by thinking it's doing good. And that's really spooky. Bonhoeffer believed that most of the real damage in the world has been done by stupid people trying to do good. I'm using his word. I know it's a horrible word. But he used that word. That most terrible things are actually stupid people trying to do good. When real evil shows up, most people stand up against it. Most people are like too far, and we, we have no trouble shooting down real evil. But what's scarier is what do you do with a dumb person that's really trying to do some good? I can almost guarantee you that 85 to 90% of the people on the opposite side of the political aisle from you are absolutely convic convicted that they're trying to save America. They're trying to save the world. They're trying to do good things. They're trying to do what's best as they see it. And they're almost certain that, that you're the dangerous one. 
They're not trying to destroy things. They're trying to help things in the wrong ways. If one side was Superman and the other side was Lex Luthor, the fight would be simple. One side was good and knows that it's good and everyone else knows that it's good. And the other side's evil and selfish and knows that it's evil and selfish and everyone knows that it's evil and selfish. When those two clash, the fight would be simple. Good versus evil. But when both sides are convicted, I mean completely convicted that they're good and the other side is evil, that they want what's best for everyone and the other side wants to destroy everything, well, that's a considerably more difficult fight. And that's the fight Paul's talking about. He's like, the Jews were not evil. They did an evil, evil thing. They crucified the Son of God, but they, they thought they were doing good. They're zealous for God. And Paul owns that tension. And I think it would be, be much easier if he could believe that the Jews who don't believe in Jesus hate God to their core. Like That would be, be easy. But he can't. He totally recognizes they're actually crazy for God. They're actually trying really hard to do good. These are zealous people. I was one of them. I know what it was like. Maybe more committed to God than a lot of Christians are. We did an exercise with the youth a few years ago. We were talking about Jesus calling us to to the marginalized and, and the needy. As adult leaders, we were talking about our responsibility to help the poor and stand up for the helpless and Maybe even challenging kids to, to reach out to those in their school um, who have no other friends and rather than kind of hiding in your cliques, you know, to, to reach out to those who are, who are marginalized. And we started asking the kids who they believe Jesus is, is calling us to help. And they went, girls who are slut-shamed, um, trans people, kids with anxiety and depression who feel shame because they go to therapy. Like, and we were all like, what are we talking about right now? Like... As adults, we were completely taken aback. Not exactly what we had in mind when we introduced this topic. And as I thought about it later that evening, I realized the kids' hearts were in the right place. Like, they, they absolutely caught the essence of the teaching. They were zealous about doing good. They just misunderstood the true nature of poverty and oppression. It wasn't that they were wrong. It's just they were, they were, they were, they misunderstood. It seems to me Paul is giving us permission this chapter to give unbelievers some credit for their desire to do good. Their zeal to make things better. No matter how misdirected they might be, no matter how, how, what wounds they might be carrying around with them, no matter how much they might be focusing on the wrong things, the wrong churches, the wrong theologies, the wrong voices, it is possible that they're really trying to come to the best conclusions they can from the information available to them. They're just missing it. I remember 30 years ago when the creation versus evolution debate was the big hot topic of the day. And I remember listening to a creation apologist. um, And it seemed he was trying to sell the idea that all scientists were just trying to suppress all knowledge that might lead to God and offer some satanic um, narrative to lead people away from God. And I remember struggling with this because I knew some scientific people really well. And they really seemed to, to not have much agenda at all. They just seemed like the type of people who could only believe what they could test and measure in a lab. And most of them were trying really hard to come to the best and most logical conclusions based on the evidence. And, and though I disagreed with them in a lot of ways, I couldn't convince myself that they were evil, that they were trying to sell some idea to, to, 
to lead people to hell. Like they were part of some huge conspiracy that involved all scientists, you know, to lead people away from God, to, to get people to stop believing God. I couldn't go there. I was like, I know these people. They're not trying to do that. They're just they're struggling with the evidence in their own in their own hearts and minds. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to put them in the same passage that Paul's talking about here. When he talks about the Jews, these Jews who he knows love God, they're committed to God, they're zealous for God. They're just mistaken. They aren't evil, they're just wrong. They're zealous for the truth, just wrong. I love the fact that Paul uses the word zealous because that's the perfect word for our time in history. The, the word for the theology of salvation um, is soteriology. It's, it's a, if you want your big you know, seminary word today. Soteriology. The study of salvation. And this is, this is not distinct for Christians. It's, this is not a Christian word. It's a, it's, a, it's a bigger word than that. If you study world religions, one of the primary features you'll study in each religion is their soteriology. Which always includes three facets. What you're being saved from, what you're being saved to, and, the, and, and how that salvation is affected. So anytime you study soteriology, you always study those three things. What I'm being saved from, what I'm being saved to, how that salvation is affected. So for Christians, we'd say we're being saved from the effects of sin, which is hell, to the glorious union with Christ. And that salvation is affected by the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. What you're saved from, what you're saved to, and how you affect that. And if we're honest, most of the debate and denominational divisions happen over that third, even bloody wars, honestly, happen over that third facet, how that salvation is affected. We fight over that a lot. But every religion has this. Buddhism is actually interesting. We sometimes think of that reincarnation in the Buddhist world is their idea of afterlife. It's not. That's actually their idea of hell. Reincarnation is their hell. It's what you're being saved from. The goal in, in Buddhism is to be saved from the endless loop of reincarnation to nirvana, which is this higher state, through the living the eightfold path. So they have their own soteriology. Everything has a soteriology. But what's most fascinating today is how much of life is almost becoming soteriological. The idea of, of choosing a career, for instance, for young kids. Do you realize the idea of choosing your career is only like 100 years old? Like it's not like it used to be you you did whatever work was available and all work was awful. Like like there was like think about like life before air conditioning and OSHA and and just this endless option of all the different careers you could have. Like that didn't used to exist. Everybody knew work. You had to work and everybody knew work was hard and and awful. And that was pretty much your only options. The majority of human history had no options available, and all work was terrible. And now that kids have not only rewarding um, career options, but thousands of them, this decision becomes heavy. It becomes like a big decision. Most young people are looking for something to almost save them from like a mundane life, from like, you know, the... The, they're looking to be saved from a hardworking, mundane existence to a completely fulfilling and financially rewarding life like this, this heaven. They're looking for this heaven through the act of choosing the right career. So suddenly, like, which is why so many young people have 10, 12, 15 jobs. It's not because they can't stick to anything. It's because they're looking for heaven. And it used to be you just knew 
work as hell. That's just what it is. It's hard, it's hot, it's awful, and you just do it because you want to provide for your family. That doesn't exist anymore. The, choosing a career is now soteriological. It's now I'm I'm afraid of hell, so I'm looking for salvation. It's a big decision. And young people are zealous about finding the right job, the job that meets all my wants and and hopes and dreams. So all my problems can be solved. I mean, we could do this with politics. I don't even think we have to. We all know American politics is a potent religion. As potent as medieval Catholicism. And with all that worship... Um, that led to like the bloody crusades. It's all here. But it also has the hopes of salvation. Like if we can just win the war, we'll be saved. Like it has this soteriological edge that we, that we fight with. You can do it with diet, exercise, medication, college and education, parenting techniques, environmentalism, social justice, all great things. But we no longer see them as, as a good means to an end. It's like they're the whole picture. If you meet someone who's really into diet, they're evangelistic. Like, oh, you haven't gone paleo? Oh, you have to go paleo. Like, it's evangelistic. It's, it's the real thing. Parenting techniques. When, when someone sees you doing something they don't agree with, they're trying to save you. So Paul, when he says the, the Jews are crazy zealous for God, I think we see zeal everywhere. Like the amount of zeal in the world, and it's this zeal for salvation. And our world might look different, but I think it's the same thing. Everyone is zealous about something. Everyone is looking for the thing that might save them. And Paul is telling us that's not evil. That's not wrong. These people aren't bad. They're just, they're just they're misplaced. I mean, that's not evil. They are they're, they are wrong. They're not bad. They're just misplaced. And after establishing this, Paul dives into one of the weirdest passages of of Scripture in this letter. He says, For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, Don't say in your heart who will go up into heaven to bring Christ down to earth. Don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back up to life again. In fact, it says the message is very close at hand. It's in your uh, it's on your lips and in your heart. And that message, the very message about faith that we preach. If you only declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's in believing in your heart that you were made right with God, and it's in openly declaring your faith that you are saved. And the, for the scripture tells us anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Paul's doing something a little weird here. He's actually quoting Moses from Deuteronomy. And when Moses actually um, originally makes this statement, he's talking about the Torah. We've mentioned many times how when the Torah was first written, there was virtually no atheist on the planet. There was really no such thing as an atheist. Everybody believed in the gods in some form. Um, Judaism was unique because it was monotheistic. There wasn't any other monotheistic religions in the world at the time. Um, But that wasn't its most unique feature. Its most unique feature was Torah. Uh, most people totally believed in the gods uh, in some form. And they believed the gods uh, ran things and affected things um, and kind of arbitrarily dictated outcomes. Um, so if you lost a crop or if you lost a child or lost money, you would just assume you would upset the gods in some way. Um, you, you just didn't know how. 
you didn't know what you did to upset him necessarily. And so you would, you'd make sacrifices to appease the gods, but you really didn't know why they were angry or what they required from you. You just knew, I have to do something. I have to, I have to, so you're kind of guessing. So when God gave Torah, it was, it was unique amongst religions of the day in that it's a God saying, I'll tell you exactly what I expect from you. No more guessing. I'll tell you what's right. I'll tell you what's wrong. So when Moses says, you don't have to go to heaven or under the earth, like he's talking about the local religions where, you know, you don't have to go up, and this is later than Moses, but let's just, this one we all know, you don't have to go up to Olympus like some of the demigods did. You don't have to go down into the underworld like some of the demigods, like you don't have to do those things like the other religions say their people did to cut, like it's right here. It's on your very lips. It's Torah. God gave it to us. It's his word. It's on your very lips. And John grabs that, and, he was, and he's like, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the, 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 the beauty of God's self-revealing uh, nature, and that became Jesus. When Paul's basically taking that statement from, from Moses, which is already pretty revolutionary, and he's saying, what Moses is really saying was it's Jesus. It's, it's, it's simple, the simple reality that God's looking for faith, and it was there all along. The message was there all along. And what Paul is saying in his context, but I think it's a powerful context for us as well, because it draws a contrast between sharing the gospel and receiving the gospel, understanding the gospel. And I think that's what's cool about this passage. Um, Here's what I mean by that. We talked a few weeks ago um, about how everybody loves babies, but that doesn't mean everybody wants to watch the birth. Like, sometimes it's like, you know, TMI. Like, clean the baby up, I'll hold it. That's, you know... Sometimes salvation can be that way. Like sometimes we can get so into the weeds and so into the details and, and so into d- debating over the, the fine-tuned, you know, things that it almost makes the whole thing, you know, more complicated than it really is. We spent nine weeks going through the first eight chapters of Romans and we went pretty deep into the, into the woods of Christian soteriology. And, and if you've been reading along, you know I've been like skimming the surface. I've been working hard to hold the context together so that we don't get lost in kind of a verse-by-verse breakdown. But there's a lot there, and it's deep. And can you imagine if that's what was required to be saved? Can you imagine if Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks over the, to the thief next to him and he was like, have you read Romans? This is going to take a minute. Like... Can you imagine how long that would take? Can you imagine, you know, if uh, if if every time you like witnessed to somebody, you had to you had to start in Romans one and and spend you know what have we been nine, ten, eleven weeks there? And you're like, as long as you fully grasp that nothing can separate you from the love of God. What Paul's saying in this chapter is basically the old kiss method. Keep it simple, stupid. Don't say you have to go up into heaven and all the lofty understandings or, or descend into the dead and, and understand all the writings of the dead guys like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. No, Paul says the message is simple. It's close. It's easy to pass on. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's in believing in your heart that you're made right with God and openly declaring your faith that you're saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. And here's the interesting thing. I think it's one of the reasons why I think it's important 
um, that we realize we've changed perspectives here. That where we were talking about our own personal salvation, now we're talking about a corporate kind of thing. We've changed in 9 to 11. When you understand um, and grasping the gospel in your own life between you and God, go deep, dig in, don't stop studying, ask the hard questions. Can I sin now that I'm saved? Can I like wrestle with all that? It's good. It's healthy. There's no end to the depth you can go. Cry out and, you know, against your flesh like Paul did. Like, how, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? All those things are good when we're in our own world. There's no extent to how deep you can go. But when we share the gospel, the gospel that's required to start a relationship with Jesus, the depths you need to go to are, are pretty simple. Paul says, if you openly declare Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He's not talking about like in your own personal walk. In your own personal walk, study. Go deep. He's like, but when you share it, the gospel's simple. One day after Pentecost, Peter preached the very first Christian sermon. And they were like, what do we do? So Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him um, and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That's pretty simple. That's pretty kiss. He's like, you know, we don't have to study the first chapter of Romans. That'll come later. You'll unpack all that later. Right now, believe and be baptized. In fact, when the, when the very first Gentiles get saved in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit kind of orchestrates this whole interaction between Peter and this guy named Cornelius and his household. Um, and so when Peter shows up to kind of talk to Cornelius, he gives a little explanation of how he got there. Like, man, I was just eating and God, the Holy Spirit led me here. Um, and as soon as Peter like gets the bare essentials of the gospel out, the Holy Spirit falls. Here's how it reads. It says, he's one, this is Peter talking about Jesus, he's the one the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those listening to the message. Peter says, Jesus did some stuff, we witnessed it, God raised him from the dead, um, he sent us out to share this message. And the second Peter says the words, you know, um, uh, says those words that anyone who believes in him, I think I put the wrong scripture up, everyone who believes in him is saved. Um, uh, yeah, there it is. I think I just had it backwards. Um, saying everyone who believes in him uh, will have their sins forgiven through his name. The second he said those words, it was like they were already, all we were doing was waiting to figure out how this works. You said believe, we're already there, and the Holy Spirit fell. When Peter went back to, to, to his people to explain to him what happened, because they were like, what are you doing hanging out with a Gentile? He's like, the Holy Spirit sent me, and the second I barely started talking, I don't know how much sermon he had in mind, but yeah, but the second he starts, he's like, I didn't even get started, and the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he did us. The message we share is pretty simple. Peter says, Jesus did some stuff, and if you believe in him, you'll be saved. Before Peter can say anything more, the Holy Spirit says, that's enough. That's all we needed. I think the simplicity of this answer is needed today in our context as well. Because the rise of, of soteriology in a million areas of our life 
that people aren't just looking for simple things. They're looking to get saved. They're not looking for just a diet so they can be healthier. They're zealous like their souls depend on it. People aren't just wanting to take care of creation because litter is ugly and God gave us the job of caring for creation. They, they believe in it like their children's souls depend on it. All the millions of ways people are desperately seeking salvation almost from a million things. I think now more than ever, the simple answer that Jesus is the only cure is important. That Jesus is the answer. Jesus is where we find purpose. Jesus is where we find healing. Jesus is where we find peace. Jesus is what overcomes our fears of all of these things. Jesus is where you find understanding and wisdom. He is the answer. Jesus is the answer. I know that's kind of old school. I know we used to say that all the time. Jesus is the answer. But the world is crying out every single day for something to save them. They don't need to go up to heaven to find lofty answers or, or go into the depths to find earthly answers. The answer is close. It's a breath away. The answer is Jesus. Now, this is the easy part. The world is zealous for answers. They're zealous for good, really. Most people are zealous for something good. Most of them really want to do good. They really want something good. They're zealous for good. And we have the answer of what is truly good. What is, what is actually good. Because most people aren't evil. They're mistaken. And we have the answer that could set them right. I think there's a reason we aren't very good at sharing that answer. Because it is our job to share that answer. If you didn't know that. To share Jesus. The next couple of verses read like this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We talked about that. But how can they call on him unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. If this is not a call to evangelism, I've never heard one. Paul is making it clear that people need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the answers. They're looking for it. They're zealous. And we need, we need to take part in sharing that answer. But again, there's a simple reason why we don't do that much. And it's the very first verse in this chapter. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayers to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Quick disclaimer, I'm about to get preachy. Um, so if you like teaching but you prefer not to be preached at, this would be a great time to refill your coffee. Um, Paul opens this chapter by saying the longing of his heart is that people get saved. He has no trouble accepting that they're stupid, that they missed the boat, they, they stuck with the law, even though no one has ever kept it. He had no trouble accepting that they crucified Jesus in Galatians. Paul had to defend the gospel against people who were trying to make the law the whole focus again, even after someone put their faith in Jesus. Paul had been beaten by these people, threatened by these people, stoned by these people, imprisoned and accused that he lied by these people. And still he says, I know they're just zealous for the wrong things. 
And I want with all my heart that they find the right answer. So let me ask you, when you read news headlines of how stupid people can be, what's your immediate gut level response? Is it for their salvation? Does your heart break? God, I want them to find the right answer. Or do you get angry? Anybody want to take me up on that coffee? When you're watching some guy twerking in his underwear in front of kids at a parade, you may see that footage. It's hard. It's hard to watch. You get angry at him and others like him? Or does your heart break that they're trying to find salvation in all the wrong places? You get angry that they're messing up your country? Or do you wish that, that with everything in you that, you that they would see the God that they're crying out for in all the wrong ways? And maybe the biggest question is, do you, do you want to close yourself off and hide from the world? Or do you feel the heart of Jesus pounding in your chest? And just as He stepped out of heaven and entered our disgusting mess to save us, does your heart cry, here I am, God, send me. Put me in that mess. Help me go out with the message. I have the answer. God, don't let me hide with it. How can they call on him they don't believe in? How can they believe in someone they haven't heard about? How can they hear if there's not a preacher? God, send me. It's so easy to feel threatened that that people are using their freedoms and abusing ours. And even more, we can feel justified in in treating people like our enemies because they're so belligerent and they clearly have an agenda. But remember... Paul constantly was chased and physically abused by the very people he's heartbroken over. They were belligerent. They had an agenda. Jesus was hung on a cross and cried out to his father to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They're just lost. They're looking in all the wrong places and, and the longing of his heart was for their forgiveness. Paul goes so far in the next chapter to say, I'd give up my own seat if if it meant they could get saved. Is that the beat of your heart? And before you feel like people in America should know better because because, we were a country founded on godly principles, and Paul talks about that at the end. He says, "Did, did Israel actually hear the message? His answer is yes. He says, but did they understand the message? Again, yes. They did. And still, Paul says, his longing is for them. And please know that I am preaching to myself here. Hi, my name is Chris and I'm a hypocrite. Like, if I only preached the things I was good at, we'd run out of material real quick. I have to preach stuff I'm not good at either. Listen, if you're online and you're watching the news and you're surfing social media and you see someone who you completely disagree with, maybe even feel threatened by, pay attention to that knee-jerk reaction. Because if it's to get angry, call them idiots, and assume that they're the enemy, you need to do a heart check. I need to do a heart check. I think 90% of my social media feeds are about how stupid the people I agree with are. It's people that I like reminding me that other people are stupid, and it just makes me feel good all day long. That is not the heart of the gospel. 
I've titled this message Heart Check because I think that's what we need this morning. A crucial piece of the gospel journey requires that, that we do a heart check. We need to own that we're sinners at the beginning of the book, recognize God paid the price for us, accept the peace of God, wrestle with our own sin, only to conclude that salvation is about being born again and having the Holy Spirit, not being perfect. We need to know that we cannot be separated from God in Christ's love. We need to know that we are not alone. We're part of a church, a people who desperately need us to show up. And we need to know that everyone else are not our enemies. They're our mission field. They're not the problem. They're the sick who need a cure. No matter how stupid they might be, no matter how dangerous their functional saviors might be to society, to, to, to their own lives, our heart has to break with compassion and grace and pity rather than anger and contention and defensiveness. Our hearts need to break for them and want more than anything else that they would find the right answer and be saved. So how do we respond to this? My kids have this running joke whenever um, they have a serious question that they really want to know the answer to. If they come to me, they know they're going to get about a two-hour answer. Um, It's going to include the history of the question, all the biblical impact on the question, and all the different possible answers to the question and and the merit of each. Needless to say, they don't bring a lot of those questions to me (laughs) unless they're trying to avoid going to bed. But the funnier thing is they jokingly um, say that they always get the same answer from mom. They say no matter what question you ask her, no matter how simple or existential, her answer will always be Jesus and take a probiotic. (laughs) Having the right tool for the job is important. The right answer is important. Jesus and probiotics can't go wrong. I announced a couple of weeks ago that, that God has already started talking to me about our preaching theme for next year. We're smack in the middle of, of a year of core strength that I think has been awesome. But the word God has given me for our theme for next year is go. One word, go. We don't learn the Bible so we can know more. We don't do a year-long dive into the core tenets of the faith so that we can just become spiritually smarter and wow people with our biblical knowledge or win debates. We build our core strength so that we can do what Jesus commanded us to do, to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of Jesus, teaching them to obey his commands. We talked last week about how significant it is that that Romans is more than eight chapters long. The gospel is bigger than just us getting saved. Don't get me wrong, our own personal salvation should fill us with worship and gratitude and love for all of eternity. But that's not how the book ends. As soon as Paul wraps up the portion of the book dealing with our own personal salvation, he says, find your people, that's the church, and go make disciples, that's the world. Find your people and go. Reach the world. My heart breaks for them. They need the answer. He gives a really concise version of the whole concept in Ephesians. So if you want to memorize some scripture, don't try to memorize Romans 1 through 10. That'll take a long time. Do Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. He said, God saved you by His grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done. So no one can boast about it. You're God's masterpiece. He created you anew in Christ Jesus so you can do good things that He planned for you long ago. That last verse, verse 10, that's, that's Romans 9 and on. The first half is Romans 1 through 8. But that's not where the book starts. There's more book because you're supposed to do something with it. You're supposed to go. Paul says you've been saved by grace when you believe. You can't brag. It's a gift from God. That's chapters 1 through 8. Then he says you're created anew in Christ Jesus so you can go do something. Go do good. That's the rest of the book. We're saved to go. And here's the deal. If you think we truly believe chapters 1 through 8, if we truly felt like we were hopelessly doomed and, and God as a sheer act of grace saved us and set us at peace with Him, and in the end nothing can separate us from the love, if you believe that, you'll share it. And the converse is, if, if, you, if you don't feel any desire to share what you have, we probably aren't truly fully grasping the beauty of, of the Gospel in our own lives. That's why one through eight come first. We should be so blown away by God's love for us that, that if, if you won the lottery and you didn't walk in here and just tell everybody, I'd be shocked. I mean, maybe you want to guard it a little bit, but when something good happens, you share it. You're thrilled about it. When I started dating Esther, I woke my sister up in the middle of the night to show her a picture of her. Look at this girl, she's awesome. I think this is the one. When something good is in your heart, you want to share it. So the way I'd love to respond to this message is do a couple things. First, do a heart check this week. Just while you're watching the news or scanning social media, check your heart. Take a half a second to listen. Are you viewing the world as the enemy or at least the opponent? Or do you see the world as your mission field? Is your heart breaking for them? Do they make you angry or overwhelmed with compassion and pity? Check your heart and ask God to soften your heart for the lost. The second thing I'd love to do is, is to start praying right now for next year's study. I believe evangelism should be natural, not a weird preachy, sales pitchy kind of thing. It's just the natural overflowing of our organic relationship with Jesus. Something that, that we can't help but share because it's just such a part of us. And be, being in tune with, with what he's doing in our own lives and then naturally sharing that with people. I'm not saying like trying to get everybody saved. Do you know where you'd go if, if you died tonight? I'm not talking about the old school get out the pamphlet. I'm just talking about learning to naturally talk about our faith. Relational discipleship. I'm hoping that next year we can dig into some of the nitty-gritty on how we do that, what that looks like. I'm getting really excited about it. So start praying now for that. Pray that we learn to do that. Pray that our heart breaks for the lost and we learn how to talk to them. Ask God to soften our hearts so we can take the Great Commission seriously.